Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. I first became aware of James Beard award-winning chef Scott Peacock at Watershed, his restaurant in Atlanta, back when I went to college at Emory in the early 2000s. His fried chicken night there was legendary. I once went to it on a date. The date wasn't so good, but that fried chicken stays with me to this day. At that time, Scott Peacock was living with his friend and colleague, one of the most important figures in American gastronomy, Edna Lewis, the author of The Taste of Country Cooking, one of the first cookbooks by a black woman to reach a national audience. Together, Scott Peacock and Edna Lewis co-wrote The Gift of Southern Cooking, which is one of my all-time favorite cookbooks. So now you know why I'm so excited to have Scott as my patient today. And in today's session, we talk all about his attention to detail. I mean, I would say that cooking is all about caring for me. Yeah. That that has always been the case, that cooking was always about caring. How Edna Lewis helped him get in touch with his Southern roots. I used to see my Southerness um, as a limiting factor. That's mm-hmm. what I thought. I'm sure, I don't think I could have articulated it that way when I met Miss Lewis, but definitely that's what I was feeling. And biscuit making. There is nothing, of, certainly in the Southern canon, that expresses the literal touch of the cook more than a biscuit made by hand. So without further ado, here's my lunch therapy session with Scott Peacock. Well, Scott, I've been a fan of yours for a really long time, so I'm so flattered that not only did you follow me on Instagram, but you agreed to come on my podcast, so thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I've been looking forward to this very much. Well, okay, so I first encountered your food and your cooking in Atlanta at Watershed, um, which was what, like 20 years ago? Was that when? I mean, it could have been. Um, I'm terrible. It was, I mean, I forgot. I know Watershed opened at least 20 years ago. I think it was maybe even sooner than that, but I really don't, I couldn't tell you when exactly. I'm not, I'm not good at that sort of thing. <laughs> but since then you've moved back to Alabama. That's where you're from originally. And is this yes, where you live now? I'm okay. from Alabama originally, but I'm not from the part of Alabama where I live now. Yeah. Got it. And, and the part where you live now is called Marion? Yes, it's a little town called Marion, Alabama, and it's the Black Belt of Alabama, which is West Central Alabama, uh, an hour from the nearest interstate, which cuts both ways. Yeah. So is it, does it have that small town feel still? Like you would oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it's the town I grew up in down in southeast Alabama, in the Wiregrass of Alabama, the Tri-States area, is actually smaller than Marion. Uh, but Marion is small. I think it's um, 3,000 people or thereabouts, population. Okay. Yeah. And um, and it's an hour and a half from Montgomery, a uh, little over an hour from Birmingham, an hour from Tuscaloosa, um, an hour from the nearest interstate, half an hour from Selma. Selma is the Got nearest it. place of any reasonable size to here. So it's very rural, very, um, you know, a lot of historic architecture which is mm-hmm. and very interesting to me and beautiful and um, traditions and, you know, food traditions and history. So it's a very, very old part of Alabama. My house is 190 years old. Uh-huh. Um, and the town that I grew up in in the Wiregrass is 115 years old. So that, that gives you some sense of it. Yeah. And when you lived in Atlanta, was, I mean, I, I just think of like the big city versus the country. I mean, were, were, you, were you pining to go back to a small town when you were God, no. there? No, oh. no. I always loved Atlanta. I mean, loved Atlanta. 
and I never planned on living in Atlanta, but then I ended up there when I was 24 years old. And um, I was perfectly happy. I would have been happy to have stayed there, but I, always, I also always thought, I was also open to, to living somewhere else, but there were two places I was never gonna live again. And one was Alabama and the other was a small town. You know? <laughs> okay, so opposite of what I thought. All right, so what brought you back? Yeah, no, I wasn't I wasn't pining for that at all. I mean, well, not, not, no, I love cities. I love density. I also love Marion. You know I mean? I love being here. I really love it, especially when people come to see me here. You know, I really enjoy that sharing, you know, this, um, really pretty fascinating place with people, you know, mm-hmm. for food. So, so what was it that drew me here was that, um, I guess it was 13 or 14 or so years ago. It was after Miss Lewis had died. And mm-hmm. I, um, it's really too long of a story, even for like a long interview today. But I, 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 I ended up meeting and then interviewing really old Alabamians. And that was really, really interesting to me. And um, I knew that that was sort of this new thing that I, I wanted to do. Like I enjoyed the restaurant. I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed aspects of that a lot, but I'd been doing it for a really long time. And, the, you know, I, there were aspects of it that were really, really meaningful, but on a whole, you know, I, I it wasn't, enough i think yeah so i um i i was you know open to having that next thing reveal itself and it did in the form of a 104 year old woman in my hometown of hartford alabama uh-huh. tell me about her, her mother's chicken pie when she was a six-year-old child so yeah and that was that's what drew you back that, that that idea it was what started yeah that was yeah. the first moment of recognition, you know, or like this was something really fascinating. And then that was someone I had known my entire life and she was 104 and I was really sure she'd been dead at least 20 years, but I was mistaken. And then I went to see a a woman um, who was a hundred years old in my hometown who I did not know, but I knew of. And this was all trying to find someone who remembered my great grandmother's tea room, depression era tea room. That's what I was looking for. That's what I was. That's what started me on the path. And I never, yeah, but, I'm, you know, the 104 year old vaguely remembered it, but never ate there. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that we weren't gonna get that, I realized I was sitting in front of a 104 year old woman <laughs> who had grown <laughs> up in the, ta- in the area where I did. And so I started asking her about food when she was growing up. And she was kind of vague, actually she was very vague at first. It was just, we ate whatever we grew, we grew all of our own food. My mother was a wonderful cook and it was no more specific than that. And then I finally um, asked her, I went to see her three days in a row. And on the second day I asked her if she, if I could give her one thing that her mother made, what would she ask for? And she asked, she said, she thought for a long time, like a really uncomfortable amount of time. Uh, and then she said on oh, my mother's chicken pie. Mm. And I, I didn't expect much, but I said, she said, I made, I made really good chicken pie too, but it was never as good as my mother's. And I said, well, tell me about that. And she said, oh, sure. And she took off and, you know, three or four minutes later, she had told me how to cut the chicken up and cook it and leaving the skin and the bone and, and you know, hard boiled eggs and a lot of black pepper and that she, um, 
you know, you better put enough grease in the dumplings because if the pastries, if you don't, the dumplings will be soggy and you mm. bake it till it's brown. And isn't that how you make yours? You know? <laughs> and then from there, it, it, she really started talking about all these other things from when she was a really young girl. It was, it, it was really powerful. I mean, still, God, 15 or so years later, 13, 14 years later, mm. it's still very powerful. It gets to me. Yeah, it's making me hungry too. But it's funny because it makes me think yes. about the difference between restaurant cooking and cooking at home, which to me feels like two very different things. But what was great about Watershed, yeah, the Watershed, when I remember eating there, did feel like you were at somebody's house. It did feel, didn't feel like fussy or overly. Thank you. That's a great compliment. I appreciate that very, very much. That's, that's one of the best compliments you could get. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, we tried really hard to cook like we were cooking at home, but it was a restaurant. So when you, Mm -hmm adapt and make changes and things but yeah yeah it is it's, it's a very different thing living being a chef in a big city and being a home cook in a very small rural town very different well i have so much to ask you but i feel like the best way to start will be with the famous question that launches every podcast that i do which is what did you have uh, for lunch today oh my gosh what did i have for lunch um i loved my lunch so much today and it it wasn't exactly what i thought i was gonna have i mean it sort of was i thought i was gonna have an omelet i eat a lot of eggs i love eggs and i can get very very good eggs here there's an organic farm here just outside of marion uh that has great eggs and then a friend of mine um jason smith over in valley grand alabama raises great chickens and great eggs so they're always on hand and i thought i was gonna have um, just a plain cheese omelet and some sort of salad. Uh, but I didn't have the omelet and I didn't have the cheese. Instead, <laughs> yesterday I got, um, I ordered from BDA Farm, the organic farm here. They do home deliveries on Wednesdays and Saturday, which is pretty great. That feels That's kind nice. of big city, really, in a way, like mm-hmm. if you're in the restaurant business. And it's the end of one season and the beginning of another, you know, even here in Alabama. So, what did they have? I got, um, they didn't have a ton right now because it is this transitional moment, but I got some cherry tomatoes, sun golds, and then some little red cherry tomatoes. I have no idea what their name are, but those are. And they're, you can tell they're the, in the season that the sun golds were still really, um, they had an intensity to them that was really great. And the little mm-hmm. red tomatoes, they tasted of the vine, you know, and that was really pleasant. And then I ordered some sweet peppers and they were, they were sweet peppers, small. Um, they were mostly green. And in general, I, I always think I have an aversion to green peppers, um, but they were good. And so- A lot of people uh, have that. It's like, I think I'm in doing this podcast when I ask people what they don't like, green peppers are very often the answer. I don't hate them. Some people hate them, you know? Yeah. I, don't, I don't mind I them, grew, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I grew up with them and I like that. So anyway, so I had those peppers and then um, what else did I have? So I had, oh, and then I had some small red onions also from BDA Farm. So I diced up the small red onion, uh, not too teensy, uh, and <laughs> I salted it and I poured over some good red wine vinegar, just a mm-hmm. little bit, you know, and let it sit for an hour or so. And I did... Um, my friend Beth Wells at Chez Panisse sent me a huge braid of garlic um, wow, around the that's 50th a good friend anniversary. To have. <laughs> nice. Oh my God. I mean, <laughs> it's really to walk on your front porch and, you know, find a box 
from Chez Panisse and opened up on this enormous braid of garlic, really mm-hmm. good garlic. So I, I put half a clove of garlic in with the onion. Like I didn't want to eat raw garlic, wanted some flavor to go into the onions a little bit mm-hmm. with plenty of salt. And then that sat for a while. So then the salad was um, just, I have a bunch of those mixed cherry tomatoes and I cut up the, you know, I seeded and took out some of the membrane on the peppers mm-hmm. and cut them in kind of not too little because I didn't want them to be in every single bite necessarily. Or if I decided I didn't want some in a bite, I'm telling you way too much. Yeah, um, I love it. No, it's great. And, it's like beautiful. You know, and salt <laughs> and pepper. And then um, what else? Oh, and some basil, some fresh basil. And I, there weren't any buds on the basil. That's my real favorite, but I love it when the little buds are there and break them up. So you're mm-hmm. not even chopping or tearing, but you get this little tiny burst of basil. Oh, I've never used the of, buds. That's interesting. Oh, go for it. I didn't okay. have, there were very few today because they've been keeping it so beautifully, you know, pruned, I guess. But there were a lot of small leaves and then um, some that were really small that I just tossed in a couple that were a little bigger that I tore. I really longed for curly leaf parsley, Mm -hmm. which I know is not at all fashionable, but I adore curly leaf parsley Mm -hmm. and mine's gone for the year. And of course, no one's going to grow it because it's not fashionable. (laughs) I think curly leaf parsley deserves a moment that's so that funny right i've now. never heard anybody sing the praises of curly leaf parsley but curly leaf parsley deserves a moment it's bitter it it's like more bitter than the flat leaf right or i don't think so spra- scraggly like, it just it feels more difficult. no i mean everything's about size and age i mean it's all you know if you get something that's really overgrown and old and scratchy i guess it could be if it's young and tender mm-hmm. because it's a lot like you know flat leaf parsley which is you know i don't dislike flat leaf parsley, but flat leaf parsley just sort of clings, you know, lays itself upon other things and wraps mm-hmm. around. And curly leaf parsley, you know, has its own integrity and its own crevices and it'll, you know, it'll grab and hold seasoning and dressing and little, you know, a tomato seed or something, you know? So right. I, like, I like it not chopped, but like torn in small little Oh yeah, it's 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 fantastic. Yeah. All right. So, I'm buy some let's do that. The store. Yeah. Let's start a curly leaf parsley farm because I didn't have any today and I really wanted it. Um, so what that was that was about it. I decided I didn't. I so then I dressed it. Um, I didn't make a dressing, but someone gave me a beautiful bottle of um, oil from Hudson Vineyards up north of you. And so I had the red wine vinegar on there already and a lot of salt and pepper and the basil and onion, the vinegar that was flavored with garlic. Um, Yeah, and and that was it. So I, 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 you know, I gave it a good dousing of olive oil Uh and it was so, so good. Then I decided I just wanted to eat all of that, like a big bowl of it and not, I didn't, I couldn't be bothered with an omelet and or cheese or heat or any of that and then the other thing was i did have um the two last peaches of the season that are a little suspect Uh, well there's a there's a farm there's there's still there are a couple of farm stands in marion but i found these actually in selma and then not in alabama has i think the best peaches in in the world just about um and these Chilton County, no, Chilton County. Have you ever had Chilton? 
County Peaches? No, I haven't oh actually. No. Yeah. Oh, Shilton County Peaches. That's from about an hour from where I live, which is nothing in these parts. I've been to Birmingham. Are... That's about it for Alabama, though. So I ate at Frank's. Yeah, Stitt's so it's south of yeah. Birmingham, but, yeah. you know, fairly rural. And there's a lot of <laughs> peaches. Like when I was a kid to get a Shilton County Peach. And then we started getting them. Um, when I was at Watershed, we would get them brought into Atlanta. I think I think they're so much better than any. I mean, I'm not knocking Georgia peaches or South Carolina <laughs> peaches. Yeah. I'm just saying that I think Chilton County peaches are vastly superior. And then, but these weren't Chilton County. And then nicely at the produce I bought them, it started out that they were from Alabama, but before South Alabama, before it was all over, they might've been from Idaho. You know, it's one of those <laughs> things. Got it. But I went with it anyway, because I really like peaches. And then I peeled them and I thought about putting them in the salad too mm -hmm. but then i felt like the salad didn't really need any more like it didn't need any more juicy or sweetness it had it on its own and so i just um i just peaches were really good and they were really ripe and they've been refrigerated because they were getting so ripe and i like cold sliced peaches mm. too oh, you, you know you have all these radical things refrigerated peaches curly parsley yeah, oh my god especially if they're possibly <laughs> from idaho you know so <laughs> The, um, so I sliced them and then I ma I'd made a jar of vinaigrette, which I, I do sometimes in my simple life with, um, with a ton of garlic in it th from that braid, that auspicious braid that I mentioned earlier. Um, I didn't leave the garlic in, but I'll, I'll slice the garlic and salt it really well in a jar until it's, you know, exuding its very bestness. Mm -hmm. And then pour vinegar over it, you know, for actually overnight in this instance, because I was in no rush. And then sometimes I put some anchovy in there because I really like that. It's not too much, even if it is too much. And um, and just made a really kind of sharp, but not too sharp, you know, shape. Oop. Vinaigrette, put that oh, over some of the peach slices. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so like a garlicky anchovy you didn't put anchovy in, but like a garlic even. I know I did. I did put oh, anchovy, did. not too, too much, you know, and I worked yeah. it to a paste so that it would distribute, not, you know, not being chomped. So that would have been horrible. Yeah. Well, so, this is all, so you had basically two salads, would you say, like a tomato salad and a peach salad? or? Yeah, I think so. And I eat them back, and I would alternate back and forth, you know, and Got I would it. just pick up the, and I would, and I'll, I'll be really honest, I ate it standing up. Mm -hmm. at the kitchen sink and I um because I was still thinking about it you know and I I just ate the peaches with my hands you know I, I love picked up a slice of peach and I did sprinkle over a little bit of mold and salt you know over some of them and then that surprised me by how much it tastes made me think of watermelon in a way that really in a good way in a way that really surprised me because I like salted watermelon but as a kid I really I was really grossed out by the notion of that, you know, salt on sweet things. Of course. Got it. God, wow. So you had now <laughs> this lunch. I mean, I, I have to say, like, if do I've been, I think you might be like my 20, no, I've done two seasons of this. You might be like my 47th, 48th guest. And that was one of the most like specific, detailed, but beautiful and like enticing lunch descriptions I've heard so far. So Thank oh, you for going. Oh, thank you. I want <laughs> no, an but, appreciate it. Yeah, that. you get an A. Yeah. I mean, my first question though is like, have you always been 
So I guess like detail oriented and focused on the specific sensations of food, was that always, even as a kid, was that true or did that develop over time or how did that all come about? Um, yes, uh, sort of yes, maybe. I, I think so. I mean, I was thinking about that a little bit myself. That was part of the joy of like this exercise, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I cook for myself every single day, but I probably need to give it a little more thought today. I wouldn't say I did anything differently, mm -hmm. um, but I knew it was going to be poked and prodded, you know. So you know, that definitely <laughs> right. probably you're is a good student. In there. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, I don't. I was. You were asking me if I'd always been this way, and I was saying that I, I cook for myself every day, and um, I. But I did think about it a little bit today as I was doing it. And that, that made it a joy. I mean, I always think about it, but I, I did think about it knowing that I was gonna be talking about it later. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was a thing that last night I thought, I, you know, I thought I was gonna have an omelet and the salad. And I was thinking about the salad and the things that I had and all of that. And I'm just reminded today of how important it is to always stay open to, to have an idea and be moving in a direction but to be open to something better revealing itself or some a circumstance changing or we change, whatever it is. And that there's, you know, we never have it all figured out. And mm -hmm. so the joy of that. So as a young kid, and in some ways the salad did take me back, I was really surprised by how that bite of salted peach really made me think of watermelon in a way that mm. still surprises me. Um, and I also like those peppers. I, I don't normally eat a lot of raw, you know, pepper. I, I like peppers a lot, but I generally like them cooked more than raw. But it did make me think also about when I was a kid, my mother would always have a dish in the summer, always have a dish of like fresh hot peppers and banana peppers and different mm -hmm. little peppers from, you know, out that she would grow. So that was sort of sweet. Um, have, so have always been, yeah, I was always very, very interested in food. I was always very interested in cooking and eating, especially the eating part. Um, I think it, it, I didn't, I, I don't know how aware, I don't think I was all that aware, you know, mm -hmm. when I was much younger. I mean, like, I don't think I was aware that I had a good sense of smell or, mm -hmm. or a good palate or any of those things. I wouldn't have had any confidence in that. Things that right. I took a lot of joy and that really direct me now or lead me. Well, it makes um, me think of an, of an artist who just has such attention to detail, you know, like, like, for some reason, I'm thinking of like Joseph Cornell boxes or somebody who just that. like, yeah, yeah, who just like really is like keenly focused on on the very specific things that are going into their work. And that's not something you can really, I mean, you can be taught it a little bit, but it, I think it's almost preternatural that you just have this inclination to care a lot about detail. And it seems like that must be true yes. for you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would say that cooking is all about caring for me. Yeah. That that has always been the case, that cooking was always about caring. Well, I hope you don't mind. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, I mean, I, I have to ask because this is such a big part of your story, but I mean, as you're talking and we're thinking about all this and you mentioned Miss Lewis, but you know, Edna mm -hmm. Lewis, um, icon of American cooking. I, 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 my understanding of the story was that you had always revered her and were a fan of hers. Um, and then when Watershed opened, you 
brought her into the restaurant? Is that sort of, or is that no. how that, no? Okay. What, no, not really, no. Okay, yeah, all. what is the story? How would you describe the story? Oh God. <laughs> I mean, that's a really long story too. No, I mean, Miss, no. I mean, I, I hardly knew who she was when I first met her. Mm -hmm. um, and I was in my twenties. I mean, I think I was 26 years old, which was a long, long time ago, but. Mm -hmm. You know, I was young, but I was the oldest I'd ever been. And um, she was in her 70s. She was 73 and still cooking at Gage and Tolner in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew a little bit about her. Uh, like I'd seen someone had shown me a picture of her in a magazine with a bunch of other people like Alice Waters and Jeremiah Tower and Wolfgang Pug in the 80s, you know, mm -hmm. um, when I was in college and just beginning to learn more about you know, food culture, cooking as even possibility of a career, which, it, it, you know, it had really not been <laughs> prior to that. Um, no, so I met her. Yeah, your story is all wrong. <laughs> I mean, first of all, like- <laughs> I don't know why never, I have that in my head. Okay, I just, that, that's what I no. thought that was the story. Okay, no, it's a sweet out. story. It's yeah. a sweet story. Yeah. Love if that was true. No, I mean, by the time, but she had moved to Atlanta um, years before Watershed. I mean, she had moved to Atlanta before Horseradish Grill even opened mm -hmm. and then and lived in Atlanta for the last 14 years of her life. And then we lived together for almost the last seven years of her life. Right. Mm -hmm. And we did. It was in those very, very early days at Watershed that we moved in together. Got it. Um, but I mean, she never cooked at the restaurant. I mean, she would come to the restaurant a lot and she would come in the kitchen, but I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I can't say she ever stood at the stove and watershed, you know. Got it. So I think I was confusing the story of you living together with the story of you also being the chef at watershed, but those two things were not necessarily connected. That's true. But they were happening simultaneously. No, and when I went to Watershed, that was, you know, I, I agreed to go there for four weeks. And it wasn't a restaurant. It was a wine shop and flower shop. And, you know, they were selling cookware in the vestibule when you walked in. And, and wasn't it Emily Sellers of mm -hmm. the Indigo yeah. Girls? So she, Correct. So she um, bought the restaurant and opened it? Was that the idea? No, it was a gas station. And she and three okay. of her friends they opened it and it was yeah. to be a wine bar and a wine shop and a flower shop and they had beautiful soaps and things and then there was a food counter where you and there were three chairs and a, uh no three tables three metal tables and a few metal chairs that people hated and um and you went up to a counter and you ordered a sandwich or some stuff to go or you could mm -hmm. sit there and eat and then the and there was a chalkboard hanging over this open, you know, so like a deli counter almost. Yeah. I mean, it was a little better than that, but a little softer than that. But um, yeah. And then that went on for, I think, I think I was there at least 12 years, maybe even 13. I really don't remember. I mean, I remember the 10th anniversary. Um, I know Miss Lewis had, was gone by then, but mm -hmm. I very much remember the 10th anniversary celebration and fundraiser that we had. And then I was there for a bit, you know, I think a good couple of years after that, but honestly, things blur. <laughs> so with, with the Miss Lewis of it all, I mean, it does sound 
because I mean, I have obviously, I mean, I'm holding it right here because this is one of my favorite cookbooks, The Gift of Southern Cooking. Thank you so much. Which yeah. I, I mean, it's so dog-eared and so torn up because this was one of the first cookbooks I bought because I was living in Atlanta. And so, I mean, you did collaborate together, but it wasn't in the restaurant, it was on this book. So it was, it was all at home. Yes. And we, and that, we started working on that book um, well before Watershed. Well, I see. Watershed. And so yes. how did your sensibility and her sensibility mesh? I mean, was it immediate, was it an immediate... Um, kinship in terms of thinking about food in a similar way? Oh, I, yes. I mean, I think there were, there was a lot about us that was very similar. And then a lot, of course, that was different. And uh, no, I think we, yes, I, I, I was thinking about, not that exactly, but yes, I mean, we, we were very simpatico in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. But I'll say that when I first met her, um, you know, I, I was on my way to Italy, I thought. I mean, I really wanted to go to Italy. Everybody was going to Italy. That's mm -hmm. Italian food was on the cover of Food and Wine and, you mm -hmm. know, Bon Appetit magazine. I mean, the gourmet, that's what the cool kids were doing. And everybody <laughs> wanted to be cool kids. Um, and I didn't, and nobody was talking about Southern cooking. I mean, I'm telling you, no one was talking. And if they were, they, you know, people rolling their eyes or mm -hmm. laughing. I mean, it, it was not regarded as legitimate cuisine or cuisine period you know it was a heart attack on a plate it was right. you know it was a punchline yeah so hmm. that's where things were there I when I was still cooking at the governor's mansion um and when I met her and then um yeah we 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 very so I went to visit her in New York at her invitation and we spent a lot of time together talking and visiting uh, and then I was going to do my very first um, magazine piece ever. Like a traditional home magazine was coming to the governor's mansion to mm -hmm. shoot a spread. And, and I wanted to talk to her about it because I really wanted her opinion. And of course, I wanted her approval. And we just sat for hours in New York at the original Dean DeLuca, which was then a coffee shop. It was their first coffee shop on Prince Street. Of course, now all that's gone. Mm -hmm. But um, we sat there in a back corner, corner for hours drinking coffee and talking. <laughs> and I would tell her things I was thinking about. And she would just say, well, whatever it is, it should be real Southern. And that was just like a kick in the gut. You know, to me. <laughs> that was really... not what I wanted to hear. I couldn't <laughs> imagine that. Like, why would anyone want to do that? That's a charming mortar and pestle you have back there, but. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah, that's in a very precarious spot for a place that has earthquakes, but I like it up there, so thank you. It looks great. Um, no, this so, is really interesting yeah. to me, so I hope you don't mind talking about it, but I, no. I find it very fascinating. And so she was encouraging you to embrace your southernness, basically, or to, in your cooking. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. And I was trying, I was trying, I mean, I was trying as hard as I could to get away from my southernness, which I didn't even understand my southernness either. You know, when I thought about my southernness, what I really thought about was, um, well, I mean, if you looked at television at the time, I, I mean, well, when I was growing up, I mean, it was Gomer Pyle and the Beverly Hillbillies. And, right. you know, like I didn't even realize that the Waltons were southern because they were in mm -hmm. Virginia, which is a long way from Alabama. But even if I had realized that, I, I don't, I don't think I would have found, I would have aspired to that either, you know? Mm -hmm. I, so I was trying to, yeah, I, I, so when I thought of, when, when she would say real Southern, I would think about my father's 
mother, Grandma Peacock, who was a sharecropper's wife for most of her life. And then a landowner, meager landowner, um, only at the expense of the death of her oldest son in the Korean War. And with his mm-hmm. life insurance, right? they bought, she and my grandfather bought a few acres. Um, you know, they lived in a two-room house uh, with an outdoor bathroom until I was in the first grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was a character. She was a really, really good cook, but she was poor and she was a character. I mean, she was a kind of, you know, my mother's mother lived across the street from us and she was a really wonderful cook, especially great cake baker. And she mm-hmm. and my mother made the best holiday cakes when I was growing up. Uh, and, you know, Mima was a warm and secure she was the warmest, most secure spot on the planet. And Grandma Peacock was the kind of grandmother that aside from not having air conditioning, aside from having an outdoor <laughs> bathroom and being poor, um, you know, she would goad you to climb up the mimosa tree and then go grab an ax from the, you know, woodshed and start chopping, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. That was terrifying. Yeah. But it was her poverty more than anything else. It was the fact that she was, I didn't understand that. I didn't understand why some people were poor and some people weren't, you know, mm-hmm. so that roughness and lack of education. My mother's family wasn't educated beyond high school either, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. Just an observation. So, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I relate to this a lot, but it feels like women in particular have had a big impact on your life. So. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. I mean, huge. Even, even the whole thing at the beginning when we talked about moving back to Alabama, that the 106 year old woman that. It's true. Talking, yeah. And why do you think that is? Is that just a, a, a specific thing to, to I mean, you? That's a really or... good question. I mean, I would, I would say that that's a good question. I would say growing up, you know, I was drawn to the kitchen. Um, mm-hmm. One reason I was drawn to the kitchen was because of what was happening in there, mm-hmm. um, but also who was doing what was happening in there, you know, mm-hmm. and those were women. And Definitely, I, I'm, I'm sure that as a child, I felt, you know, more secure, you know. Yeah, and my grandmother's, I, had, I mean, my mother's mother was a really important, you know, influence on me. Um, mm-hmm. Her mother, who was actually her stepmother, was a really important influence in a different way. She's the one that had the tea room, you mm-hmm. know, that sent me on this journey that led to Marion, Alabama. Um, and then my father's mother was also really important in ways that have, you know, that definitely shaped me at the time, uh, but also continue to shape me, I mean, almost dramatically now, I would say. I mean, she died when I was in college. My mother's mother died when I was um, in the third grade, which mm-hmm. was really hard. My um, but my, my, her, her stepmother died when I was in college and my father's mother died when I was, uh, had just moved to Atlanta. So, but they, they had tremendous influences on me that I realized more and more as I've gotten older and thought about it in terms of mm-hmm. cooking, the way I saw the world, certainly the way I saw myself. Um, yeah, and so much of that was, you know, I, I, I was embarrassed by Grandma Peacock and I had a tremendous amount of shame about my embarrassment and shame that I felt about her. I knew it was wrong. Um, I didn't feel good about it at all. I didn't want to feel that way, but I did. I was scared. Um, and I, you know, so it wasn't anything I talked about, 
you know, but I didn't feel close to her in the way that I did with other people. And now as, you know, a so-called adult, and I think about it, <laughs> about her an awful lot, and especially like um, all that tension that I found, you know, she was someone who um, now this very heroic figure for me in my life. I think she was widowed the first time when she was in her early 20s. But I was just saying that, I mean, she was someone that I, I, you know, had embarrassment about, that I was Mm -hmm. a little afraid of, that I had all these complicated feelings. Um, You know, and I saw my Southerness, like I've really come to realize this fairly recently. Um, Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Oh, good. That... I used to see my Southerness um, as a limiting factor. That's mm-hmm. what I thought. I'm sure, I, I don't think I could have articulated it that way when I met Miss Lewis, but definitely that's what I was feeling, that it was mm-hmm. something to rise above, to um, you know, put behind you. Um, it wasn't something to dig into. You know? mm-hmm. It was something to move on from. And I, I thought of it as very limiting. And now as an old person, um, you know, I've come to realize that it, it, my Southerness wasn't at all limiting. My, my feelings around it, my attitude, my fear around it was incredibly limiting, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that like you, you can uh, try and decide step who you are or what you are um, is the most exhausting thing in the world. And Absolutely. you're always, you know, it is exhausting and it depletes you. Um, and there's always fear involved in that and shame mm-hmm. and, um, you know, to just embrace it, then you can really build on that and be anything. But as long as you're trying to cover that up or, um, you know, in some way, like th- this is a, this is not even that great of a story, but early on in the, my friendship with Miss Lewis way before she moved to Atlanta though. And we had gone to California. We'd met in California. She had taken the train and I'd flown out to meet her um, in San Francisco. We were up in the wine country for an event that she was doing uh, and I was her assistant. And we weren't staying at the same place. Um, We were staying in separate cottages, but I would go pick her up in the morning. And after the second day or so, she asked me if I would come in and look at her shower that was broken. And, you know, I mean, you, I don't know if you ever saw her in Atlanta or not, or happened mm-hmm. to meet her, but mm-hmm. you know, the images, I mean, just, um, a very regal, very majestic presence, you know, that was this uh, sophistication and girlishness, you know, that, that I've never encountered in my life. I mean, you know, you'd walk down the street with her in New York city and, at night in, in sketchy parts of town sometimes and the people that had been trying to sell me drugs and stuff on the way would take off their hat and you know bow to her. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. I can't ever say that. So I saw it as this very sophisticated, very, you know, presence. Anyway, I, I went in her shower, the thing was broken. It wasn't broken at all. It was, a, it was one of those um, um, things where you, you know, you, you, turn it towards hot or cold, but then you had to pull it out from the shallow mm-hmm. wall a little bit to make water come. Mm-hmm. And I recognized that immediately and I showed her and she started giggling <laughs> and laughing and her put her hand over her mouth. And she said, oh, Scott, she said, I'm from the country. 
And that is such a small, simple thing. Mm-hmm. But, and she lived in New York for 50 years, you know, and I thought of her very much as a New Yorker. And mm-hmm. a, a lot of my experience with, with her was in New York. But it was that moment, like in my own person, where I just realized like she embraced being from the country. She was so mm-hmm. proud of being in the country. I mean, she wrote that masterpiece. I mean, masterpiece, The Taste of Country Cooking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, about that. She never ran from it or sidestepped it or certainly wasn't by the time that our paths crossed. So why yeah. do you think that, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, well, I just want to say one thing about that. Like that yeah. was a, that's such a simple and like I said, not even that great of a story. But for me, it was really significant mm-hmm. because I saw her as being those two things that, you know, that being from the country and being proud of and owning that part of herself was as connected to being this New Yorker and this mm-hmm. celebrated personality and, you know, brilliant cook, uh, all of those things that, you know, just her physical presence would command the respect and, you know, of thugs, <laughs> drug dealers. Drug dealers right. No, I love that description you know? of her as majestic, though, because that's that's sort of how I imagine her. And and oh, I mean, seriously, yeah. I'm curious. I mean, I can answer this because I've been talking to you for a while, and, and it's been really fun. But what do you think that she saw in you in terms of your friendship? What I mean, it's clear that you were you know kind of in awe of her and respected her. And what what do you think brought her towards you in terms of this friendship and living together? Oh, that's very. Um... I have given that thought. I, I kind of marvel at that part, to be honest. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can see it, especially now that I'm older, I can see it more. Um, you, you know, because, but I was young. I mean, I was in my twenties when we met and, um, and I was still drinking mm-hmm. and I was, you know, I was a nice person um but I was a mess you know I really don't know how I mean sometimes when I'm around people in their 20s now who are drinking I just think like oh my god you know how (laughs) how could you endure such a thing so but what I think I mean what I I'll tell you that very early on I think that especially the first time that we could together I think we both recognized that nothing was too much Mm-hmm. And we would have done anything, you know, to get something right. And if that meant driving a hundred miles for a plum or, you know, importing water to the low country to wash greens with, or staying up for two nights straight, you know, like nothing was too much. There was, you know, and that I didn't, I didn't realize yet how uncommon that is, mm-hmm. you know, this, this and, passion for food and for cooking and, and Southern cooking. In and getting it right. And getting it right. Well, yeah, the Southern cooking evolved for me because, you know, that was, that, that wasn't where I was headed at, in, early mm-hmm. on. I did, I mean, I had a very, you know, it was, it was like a religious experience. Everything just clicked very, very suddenly for me um, during that weekend when I went to visit her in New York. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I've written about it. <laughs> I'll send you the essay. It was, I really, oh, yeah. I, the, Don Davis asked me, I did run an essay about this actually um, for Bon Appetit um, back in April. That okay, that, it's really nice to hear you talk of, to talk about it. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm yeah. glad to. I'm just, <laughs> um, yeah, so what, 
let me see where there was something I was going to where I was going with this. Uh, the one point I want to make is that when I talk about it, that my Southerners being a limiting factor, I realized that my attitude was a limiting factor. Mm-hmm. What I mean is that I think I could have also, if I decided to be a cook, I could have had a career where I wasn't cooking Southern food that could have been perfectly um, legitimate. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? I don't think that, in other words, I don't think that because I was from the South that I could only have a career cooking food to be legitimate mm-hmm. or you know, that wasn't limited, wasn't that limitation, um, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. But I think I thought it was at the time. So well, it makes a lot I'm of sense in the get outside of that. Yeah, and the context of how you were describing people's perceptions of Southern food, because it does feel like there was the real renaissance of Southern food in the early 2000s or maybe like 2010s with like Garden and Gun magazine, I think about. And yes. I just think about there are a lot all of that things kind of thing that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when, when you think about cooking with Miss Lewis, though, and the, the actual physical act of it, were there things that you learned from her and th- that you still carry on? To oh, God. Day? Yeah. Um, oh, yes. I mean, of course. But but also she wasn't she was. You know, so much of it was. by example or just experience, you know, in other words, like I, there was never a time that she ever went and said and now I'm going to teach you how to do this right you know that it was never that um yeah I think I mean I mean now that you're asking me to (laughs) articulate something nothing is really coming (laughs) to mind I mean much of I think is about that quietness and one thing Mm -hmm. I'll say that I don't know that I that I learned this from her but I easily could have somehow it evolved but I I know that when I was very young because I did like to cook when I was that kid you know in growing up in Hartford Alabama and my mother had um you know next to the stove over the washing machine was a spice cabinet that had a Tupperware double carousel with all these dusty dusty (laughs) tins and bottles of dead things spices and I can remember like I just love to get you know pull everything off of there and put all these things and Things that I was being creative. This was like eight or ten, or you know, whenever mm-hmm. they would let me the stove. Um, and I did. I think I went to a period where I thought, when I was much younger, where I thought that you know that the creative act was in adding something. And somewhere along the way, I just became very aware. It was never spoken. I think I just realized it that that removal of the not essential is a creative act. I mean, it's what's mm-hmm. not there that yeah. makes the space between the notes, you know. Isn't that Coco Chanel, like always take off one article of clothing before leaving the house? Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, and that was sort of what I was going through today because I thought maybe I was gonna put those peaches in there in that Mm -hmm. salad. But then something as I was doing it, you know, said, well, cut big slices of peaches first. And then if Mm -hmm. you decide to put them, you can, you know, to taste things and to notice, really Mm -hmm. to notice, to notice. Well, I keep thinking about how you wanted to go to Italy and that speaking to Miss Lewis changed your direction. But I, I, I think a lot now as you're talking and I think about this book about the, the celebration of ingredients, that there's a real similarity in, in the way that you oh, yeah. approach food that they do in Italy, that they do at Chez Panisse, that it's all kind of the same idea in just different geographical locations. Um, Very much. Yeah. So it kind of, you didn't need to go to Italy in a way to sort of have that 
to, to realize the bounty, I guess, of the land that you came from. It's true. I just need, I just needed to, to see that through eyes that I could trust, you know? Yeah. And so I, I'm curious, you, you teach a um, biscuit making class now, or is that sort of something that... Sort of. I mean, I don't call it a class or a... It's hard to explain. One thing I'll say about that too, though, is like later, Miss, when I, at the time we met, I had never been to Italy. Miss Lewis had never been to Italy. And later we did go to Italy together. And, you know, and of course, and it was a lot of corn and pork and, mm-hmm. you know, vegetables. I mean, it was, it, you know... It was what you were saying, you know, the, it, and Miss Lewis kept saying this, this seems real Southern to me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Love she that. Look at the yeah. landscape and she would say, the landscape looks real Southern to me. She was always uh-huh. drawing that comparison because we did. I mean, that was, we both loved Italian food and that was the whole thing. And she, I remember she, she said this specifically, she said, you know, I love Italian food too, but, but you should really learn about your own food before you go running off to study someone else's. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a kick to the stomach. Yeah. My yeah. face is burning now. Just remembering that. Oh, I had no I idea what that, she was though. talking about either. Yeah. I could I couldn't imagine what she was talking about. It's funny because it's very, yeah. very, very narrow view of Southern of what Southern cooking was. Mm-hmm. You know, and it wasn't, I mean, it was in the relationship, like later realizing that she had never had lane cake. She had never had a lot of the peas and things that I grew up with in Southeast Alabama. You know, mm-hmm. and there, of course, there are a lot of things from Virginia and dishes that she wrote about and cooked, you know, that I had never had before either. So, but I, you, you would ask me another question. I Oh, about the biscuits. Yeah, teaching people how to make oh, biscuits. Because yeah. I want to come mm-hmm. take your biscuit making class. I want you to come, but it's not a okay. class. I mean, oh, okay. Sort of, no, it's, it's an happening. experience. <laughs> okay. It's an experience. An it is an experience because it's very... Um, I want you to come to Mary. Yeah, I would love biscuit, to yeah. get your biscuit on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the biscuit experience is um, it's, it's really hard to explain in part because it's never the same, you know, mm-hmm. it's not, there's no, there's not a syllabus. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. not, there's no outline. Um, the, it is different every single time because people who show up are different every single time and they come for different reasons. And it's, it's as much as anything, it's a conversation, you know, and it's an exploration. And both of those things are always different because the people are always different. Like some people do show up um, very much. And when I first had the idea for it, I did think that, that a, a big part of the draw was gonna be um, people who had tried to make biscuits and had not had success and you know that it was going to be instructional was going to be a bigger part of it and Mm -hmm. before the pandemic you know there was more of a hands-on uh aspect to it which there's less of right now um but then early on too I realized that a lot of people some people did come very specific because they really wanted to put their hands in a bowl of biscuit dough Mm -hmm. um but a lot of people really came because they wanted to have the conversation and some people would show up because like some people won't even get in the front door and they, the first thing they said, like, how in the hell did you end up in Marion, Alabama? You know, <laughs> which is a reasonable question. <laughs> so, so people come for, and from a lot of, for a lot of different reasons, from a lot of different places. I think we've had people from 32 states now at this point and mm-hmm. Australia and Mexico. We had a lot of people 
booked from the UK before the pandemic, but that's on hold for the moment. But anyway, you come, you know, and the Biscuit Kitchen is a kitchen that I oversaw the redoing of in this beautiful Greek Revival mansion that's very near my house. It's not in my house. Um, And, you know, it's time kind of slows down and stops and, you know, there's no clock, no Mm -hmm. timers. Well, I do have a timer for brewing tea because I don't want that to get bitter, but otherwise, (laughs) yeah. No, and it's just, it's it's a conversation and exploration. I'm not doing it justice right now. You really just have to- No, you are. And I'm actually- the yeah. worst at, exp- at explaining it, you know? Not at all. You're making it sound wonderful. And I think it makes me think about what you said earlier when I asked you what you learned about cooking with Ms. Lewis and you said- um, Silence, like you mentioned, you kind of it kind of got pushed yes. in there, but 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 then yes. when you just described your biscuit making class, you also sort of talked about just being in that kitchen and just sort of being in that presence. You know that there's a silence yes. to it, or like a calm or med- meditative quality to it. It is very meditative for me. I mean, even the act of making biscuit, you know, I mean, biscuit is just such a fascinating thing because, I mean, it's fairly ubiquitous. It's very trendy right now. Um, and it's so many different, there is no one true biscuit, mm-hmm. you know? It, it, it is such an expression of the maker. In fact, I, I contend with ferocity, <laughs> that, <laughs> with, with deep conviction that there is nothing, there is nothing of certainly in the Southern canon that expresses the literal touch of the cook more than a biscuit made by hand. Wow. Completely and, do you, made by hand. and do you think like in California and LA, I could get the ingredients that would put me in like the running to make a really good biscuit? I'm certain of it. Okay. I'm certain of it. I have done that in California. Yeah. I Got think, it. you know, so one of some, some of the, one of the best, two of the best biscuit experiences I've ever had were in California, actually. Really? One was, Where? This, mm-hmm. um, well, one was, um, Slough- which I think was 12 years ago in San Francisco. Slow and, food, um, yes, it was Slow Food Nation. It was their first Amer- you know, American Slow Food Festival. And I, um, with Heritage Foods, with Patrick Martins, we built a little biscuit kitchen under a tent on the um, Civic Center Plaza down- downtown, which mm-hmm. is where the sort of daytime headquarters were. And for three days, I um, did nothing but make biscuits and they got we got some great hams from benton had some hams that we use and then uh edwards out of surrey virginia which i like very much also we had hams there and they were slicing the hams you know old school mechanical slicers you know to order and i brought preserves and things up from atlanta Mm-hmm. And, um, but the flour I got was milled by Justo's, which I think you, I know you can get in Los uh-huh. Angeles. I think that's where you live. And, um, and lard, we had um, uh, fatted calf, tailored fatted calf, rendered nice. beautiful leaf lard. And then I've been trying to think about the, the, the liquid. Um, I'm almost confident we clabbered Strauss whole milk you know, mm. and use that. And it was thrilling because, you know, I mean, everybody was there and, you know, people would come in and stand around. I, all I did was like make biscuits all day long. And I had a mm-hmm. young woman who came up from Atlanta who was 
brilliant and just the best help and was really was one of those people that would have stood on an anthill to make it work, you know? So mm-hmm. that, that kind of conviction is rare and so appreciated. Yeah. That's very inspiring. I kind of want to go make biscuits now, but before I do, yeah. uh, I have to, first of all, thank you so much for taking this time. But before we end, I always end every podcast with, uh, we start with what did you have for lunch, but we end with what are you having for, I should say supper tonight. Yeah. Supper, supper dinner, supper is dinner, right? Yeah, supper is dinner. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, yeah, supper is is the evening meal. So and dinner is the noonday meal. Other oh. a lot of people say lunch now, but when I was growing up, dinner was always the big the noonday meal. Got know? it. Okay, I'm glad yeah. I asked that. So, what is for supper tonight? So for supper, I think there's a good chance that I'm actually going to revisit to some degree that salad, and okay. and I'm and the peaches are all gone now. So that's not even an option, but their memory is, um, I have a very fond memory of that. I, I, well, we don't have time, but I could, one of the best peaches I've ever ate in my life was in California. Was oh, really? one, of the most memorable, mm-hmm, one of the most memorable peaches I ever had in my life was in Napa Valley. Um, and I w- was out there for a two week um, course with Madeline Kamen at Behringer Vineyards mm-hmm. and she was, I can't say enough about Madeline Cameron. I have her books. Yeah, I'd love to. She had jealous. on me. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. And to stand at Sterling Oak, is that Silver Oak? Silver Oak, up on this observation deck. And they had just brought peaches in from the fields and they were enormous. And I was still drinking then. And I just remember having like their Cabernet and this peach juice running down my forearm and um, being in that exalted place with her with something else but sorry um it's a very sudden thing and food i think as much as anything unlocks all of that you know there's memories. i love it i love the digressions yeah i feel like i'm in a tennessee williams play right now you are (laughs) um so so supper so the first persimmons have just come in Mm -hmm. um they're they're early they're ready early this year which i'm a little on my tree which i'm a little worried because i I have this sad feeling that maybe that means my tree is in decline mm-hmm. and that it's producing fruit earlier and trying to like reproduce, you know, that's, yeah. I hope that's not the case, but um, cause I planted that tree and you know, I love persimmons. So I don't know if I'm going to, uh, I think I'm, uh, I ate one earlier today. It was, it was very rough and really, really good. But I think some of the crisp ones I might slice and, sort of dress like I did the peach with that garlicky anchovy, just a little bit, not too much dressing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and some salt. And I, and I do have those vegetables and they were so good. I think I might do that again. Then the other thing that I'll probably have with them because I need to do this and plus I'd like to do this. Um, I, you know, cornbread is, is, uh, is, an, is another experience I'm working on. We don't have just the basic experience. People, Biscuiteers, people who come to Biscuit then are eligible to come back and thank God they do and have other experiences, whether it's the chicken and dumpling experience or the, yeah, or something like that. What, what do you mean? Is, what do you mean eligible? Um, what did you mean by eligible to come? I to mean, that at least for the time being that, that, that it's a requirement that it, once you're a Biscuiteer, then, then you're, you know, if you, if someone who makes the journey to come in Biscuit, I feel like that's a kind of an important establishment of the relationship, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, if, and you know, and one thing that makes the, the biscuit experience work in the way it does is because 
when you get down to it, and this is also one reason that biscuits became, I think, as popular as they did, is that they're made very quickly, mm-hmm. very quickly. You know, so in 10 minutes, you have something in the oven, and, and in 10 minutes, you have something on a plate in your mouth. Um, and that's one reason that biscuits became so iconic and so r- really, really important. I mean, a mm-hmm. meaningful, meaningful part of the culture. Um, so once someone comes and gets the lay of the land, they see what the extension is like, and that it's not a class or a workshop sort of thing, then people come back for, you know, rolled chicken and dumplings. Because my great-grandmother, she made the very best chicken and dumplings. They were very, yeah. very thin. And, um, you know, and this is like cornbread, which is what I'm working on now, because cornbread is, again, those simple things, but there's so many iterations. I mean, there are as many iterations of cornbread and they're so varied. I mean, like remarkably varied, not just a little bit of variation. I'm not talking about jalapeno cornbread either. I'm just talking about <laughs> basic, simple. And when I grew up, well, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Anson Mills. I mean, there would yes. be no biscuit experience without Glenn Roberts and you know the antique wheats and the that's the flour that I use and mm. so you can absolutely order from Glenn Roberts and I'll tell you the flowers to order yeah. from from there and you also have Justos out in your neck of the woods which is where I've had before I was indoctrinated into antique wheats um, mm-hmm. I was getting and very happy with some flour if I was in on the west coast to make and if I thing. buy that um Anson Mills wheat would I be able to use that in like other recipes too like cookies and stuff like that or is it really yeah, only for definitely. biscuits okay no Great. no in, in fact don't if you don't don't get carried away and go on their website or their biscuit flowers yeah I mean you can but that's not what I use I don't use their biscuit flowers okay. I, I blend two other um antique wheat varieties their their red make um pastry flour and the white lamas cake flour and I blend them together. It's well, I'm still in trouble with my partner because last year during the pandemic, I bought three 25 pound bags of different kinds of flour from a miller. That's nothing. No, but they're oh, still in nothing. the closet. I think they probably went rancid at this point. One was whole wheat. One was, um, I didn't get through oh, all of it. Yeah. They might be, but you can compost it. And the other thing yeah. is you have so many friends. I mean, I, I love your podcast. Thank you. Know, you. Not people are like, dropping in from the neighborhood so (laughs) do you know get that wholesale shipping and pricing and then divide it up and put it you know in in your freezer i I feel strong about that i'll be glad to touch on that but one last thing about so the tonight is the supper is um um the cornbread so i've um my mother when i was gonna we never had what we called egg bread uh the only kind of cornbread we had was of the hot water variety, but we didn't even call it hot water cornbread. We just called it cornbread. Mm-hmm. And it was this um, finely ground white cornmeal from my hometown from a milling company called JT Pollard's. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's distinctive about it is, um, is the fineness of the grind, I think. And so it has much more, it produces a cornbread, regardless of the style you're making, it's not dry and crumbly. I mean, it absorbs a lot of liquid. So it seems to some people more like spoon bread, even when it's not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I make muffins with that. But the thing that I'm working on now, which I have not made in a really long time, is my mother's um, like pancake or pon, I guess, but it's cooked on top of the stove. So you make a, it's just a paste of um, the cornmeal and boiling water and salt. Mm-hmm. until it's kind of like mashed potatoes, 
and then you flatten it out. It's a very, very thin, you know, um, pancake. And you, like I said, you cook it on top of the stove. You can, you know, lard the pan or some sort of fat. Some people do bacon grease, all of that, of course. Um, and then you flip it once it's, you know, halfway there. And, but it's a slow cook and it's very, 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 very crusty on the outside. And the inside is always creamy, kind of like, mm. but then and fully cooked, kind of like, you know, the consistency of really good mashed potatoes. So it's like um, a pancake cornbready, mashed potato-y experience. Yes, but it's this thin, thin disc. You know, you cut, you take it and you cut it into wedges like a pie. Uh-huh. And yeah, there, I, you know, I, I, you, I think you um, connect to it or you don't. And mm-hmm. I very much do. I know other people who do. And um, yeah, it's relatively austere, but, but it's not, you know, there's an earthiness to it. I don't know. I remember once I was in Venice and I, I asked, uh, someone was showing me around in the Rialto market. And I said like, what's the most authentic or like old school thing that I could bake good that I could get here. And it was in the fall and they, I got this thick wedge of like of a loaf of um, chestnut cake. I think it was cake. Um, and I took a bite and I put it in my, you know, my winter, outerwear and walked around with it and then as a, and at first I didn't think it was all that and then little by little as the day went on and I would walk around I would take another bite and um I'm telling you by the by the last bite of that which might have even been the next day I, w- I was feeling tearful and this was probably eight or nine years later like I, I long and think about that mm. that slice of chestnut flour cake um that was so austere really but I that, feel like a lot of home cooks don't play with flour that much, but it does, it makes such a difference to use different kinds of flowers. It, oh yeah, all sorts of things. And especially when in Rome. So, so I'm going to be making that pancake because I need to spend some time. It's been years since I've already made it, but. Wow, but I that sounds like a good dinner. Here. Yeah. So no, this is your dinner. Is the, yeah. Oh, is, is that's not tonight or it is tonight? No, I think it is going to be tonight. I think it's yeah. going to be more of that salad in some version there won't uh-huh. be peaches but i think there will be sliced persimmons with that you know garlic anchovy dressing just a little like a drizzle not like coating the whole thing and um and then this this you know pone or, or pancake we call it we just actually we just called it cornbread it's, is all we called it like the only time That's we ever delicious yeah i kind of want to get on a plane be. right now and have that <laughs> yeah it's very crusty and very yeah. creamy and it has depth to it you know it's one of those still waters run deep kind of dishes i think i I always say one other thing too and i know i know we're out of time and all that (laughs) i was thinking about this you and you were you were saying you were asking like what it was that um um that miss lewis saw in me oh right yeah and i don't know that it was this so much except what what i will say this actually a story about our editor for that cookbook, the Judith Jones, who was the legendary, oh, yes. legendary Judith Jones, you know, who we can thank for, you know, Julia Child being in print and the diary of Anne Frank and on and on and on. Marcella Hazan. So um, when we were working on the gift of Southern cooking and Judith always was in her eighties then, Miss um, Lewis was in her eighties and uh, we would spend a lot of time in New York and we would, um, 
go to the office during the day and then go to Judas sometimes at night and cook. And I had written a recipe for pie dough. And Judith always um, or often thought that I was too chefy. She thought that I was chefy and that Miss Lewis was his home cook. And the truth is Miss Lewis cooked in restaurants a whole lot more than I <laughs> had ever. Right. So, um, but I was worried that she was gonna say that this pie dough recipe was too fussy, but it was the way I made pie dough. And she said, well, just send it to me and, um, and I'll make it and then we'll go to my house and I'll make it in front of you. So we did and we got there and she'd made some the night before that was you know, in the refrigerator and ready to go. And then she made this batch of pie dough. And this was the legendary Judith Jones. And she made it, she was a very, very good cook and a very serious cook, very serious person. And she made it and she did a great job at it. And she um, looked at me and she said, well, how did I do? And I said, pretty good. And she said, pretty good. She said, but I want, I want an A. <laughs> <laughs> That's and it hilarious. was this moment between us. No, but it was this moment between us like where I realized that she was a human being too. Mm-hmm. She was in her 80s. She was a publishing legend, right. you know, beyond. Um, and she was still wanting an A, you know. And how rare is that? Know. Like a, a cookbook editor would also go to that effort and really make one the night oh, before. Oh, she was serious. It, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, she changed my life in, she and Miss Lou both in wonderful ways. Again, women, you know. Yes. So anyway, my point in that is that, 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 that was a little bit of a revelation. Of course, that was also a moment of understanding between us too. Mm-hmm. Because I remember I said, we all do, Judith. We all mm-hmm. want A's. We all know? want an A, yeah. And we never really talked about that exactly in that way, but there are other things that, there were acknowledgements is what I'm trying to say. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it, it was, it was this, through cooking, this moment of understanding between us as human beings, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and so about that, especially now that I'm older, and I sometimes work with students from the University of Alabama or the, you know, Auburn, other things here. Like I, I realized, and something, something I try to say is that when you're young and you're used to older people looking at you and helping you to see yourself or to, mm-hmm. um, to understand or realize that you're special or whatever, validation. You know, we're all seeking validation. We all want to be seen. We're all terrified of being seen. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I... I'm so lucky because I had, that's part of what I think about that is, is that um, it doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. I I saw that with Judith. I saw it in a different way with Miss Lewis, you know, that. Mm -hmm. um, So I think maybe that was part of it. I will say that there was, with Miss Lewis, there was just an unspoken understanding that, you know, that was more than enough, so. I mean, just like the cover image of the book is such a beautiful picture of her clearly being tickled by tickled by you in terms of just enjoying your company. And she seems like she really is happy to be at a table with you. So that makes a lot of sense. And I, I like how you put that in terms of how it stays with you, the way people make you feel about yourself. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Scott, this was so wonderful. I feel like we've got to do like a part two someday. Maybe we'll continue your lunch therapy session. Anytime. I would be delighted. <laughs> I would oh, love that. What are you having for supper? Or is that against the rules? No, my parents are visiting LA. And so we're going to this wonderful restaurant called Republique, which is um, sort of like a French 
French restaurant. I don't even know if you'd call it French, but they make their own baguettes. They make their own, wow. um, all the food is beautiful. And they, it's in Charlie Chaplin's old studio, which then became- Oh, which used to be Campanile. Campanile, right. right oh. And La Brea Bakery. So it's in that space. So we're going to go there tonight. Oh, which I'm pretty that's excited very, about. that's, that's tender. That almost brings a tear to my eye. I have such oh. fun. Well, you'll Memories have to come to LA. that restaurant yeah. early on. My sister lives out there. And I used to- okay. I love Los Angeles. I, I have a lot of friends out there and I used to, well, before, before I, you know, became a, um, a country mouse, I, <laughs> I, used to be, I used to be in Los Angeles with some frequency and I like it an awful lot. Really love Santa Monica. Yeah. Well, let me know if you come, come out here and we'll, we'll go to um, Republic. Of course, I would love that so much. I can't wait to the kitchen. Adam. Okay. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thank All you right. so much, Scott. It was so great to finally thank meet you. you. Have and a great likewise. day. Likewise. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. I'm Elsie Granderson. And I'm Will Leach. Every week in The Long Game, we look at the biggest stories in sports and how they affect the world of culture and politics. You think COVID has messed up sports forever? I think sports has totally forgotten that COVID ever existed. You think legal betting is bad for sports? I know it's bad for me to bet on the Pistons. That's a very, very bad idea. <laughs> Who is the most entitled GOAT of all time? I feel like there's a hundred-way tie for first. Well, at least at first. That's why they're the GOATs. We love talking about sports. And because we love our sports, we want our sports to be better. Which is why we don't dodge those big, messy issues. And we certainly do not stick to sports. So join us for deep thoughts, great laughs, and a weekly breakdown of the biggest issues in sports. The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Find us on the ACAST app, Twitch, and wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, 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 ACAST recommends. recommends.